Acts is a transitional book. In it, we can see the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from God's focus on Israel to God working out His kingdom purposes through the church, from the temple in Jerusalem to the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is the church, from legalism to grace, from ceremonies and rituals and dietary laws, which were mere shadows, to the substance that was in Christ, from those things that pointed to Christ, to Christ himself. Now, the Lord Jesus inaugurated the new covenant at the cross, but the understanding of the new covenant and the abandonment of the old covenant didn't happen overnight. It was a transitional process. If you want to see the theology of that transition, it's in the book of Hebrews, where the writer shows that Christ is superior to everyone and everything in the Old Covenant. But if you want to see the historical outworking of that transition, it's in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we find that the church was still meeting in the temple. In Acts 3, 1, we find Peter and John still observing the prescribed Jewish times of prayer. In Acts chapter 10, Peter adamantly resisted abandoning the dietary laws. In fact, even when God gave him a vision, he said, No, Lord. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 3, the Jewish believers, including the apostles, were shocked that Peter actually ate with the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, the council at Jerusalem struggled with the question over whether Gentiles had to be circumcised to be saved. The book of Acts is a transitional book. And our passage this morning is going to show us three more examples of that transition taking place in the early church. We're going to see Paul in transition, Apollos in transition, and the disciples of John the Baptist in transition. First of all, we'll see Paul in transition in verses 18 to 23. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Paul didn't get the opportunity very often to decide to leave a city. He was usually driven out before he ever got this opportunity. But in Corinth, God had promised Paul back in verse 10 that he would not be harmed. And that was confirmed in verses 12 to 17 when the Jews took him to court and the charges against Paul were thrown out by Gallio. And so here we're told that Paul stayed in Corinth many days longer and then he decided to leave. Why? Well, it doesn't tell us specifically, but it does tell us where he was going. It says he was going to Syria. Now, what was in Syria? Well, Antioch was in Syria. That was the church that sent him out on this second missionary journey. Paul has probably been in Corinth now for about two years. He's been on this missionary journey for about three years. He's assuming it's time to go back to Antioch, report to the church there, get reunited with the Christians there, and get recharged for future ministry. But Paul doesn't leave by himself. We're told here that he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila. Now, that tells us a few things. Number one, it tells us what Paul thought of them. He had developed a real bond in his relationship with this couple. And he not only viewed them as people to be ministered to, but as people who could minister. In fact, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 3, he refers to them as fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And so now he takes them along with him 
to minister to others. But secondly, it tells us something about the church at Corinth. Paul assumed that the church at Corinth had raised up enough leaders that he could pull Priscilla and Quilla out of there and the church would be all right. And we read about some of those leaders here, probably Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue. And when you open 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you read about people like Gaius and Stephanus, who were early converts there, had become leaders in the church at Corinth. But I think a third thing that this tells us is it tells us about the loyalty and devotion of Priscilla and Aquila. They left their business in Corinth when Paul asked them to go, and they went out to be missionaries with him. And verse 18 continues and says, In Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, Sincrea is the eastern port of Corinth. This is where they would have gone to catch a ship. About four years later, when Paul writes the letter of, of Romans, he mentions a lady by the name of Phoebe who was from the church in Sincrea. Now, we're not told here whether this church was already established or not. The only thing we're told in Sincrea is that Paul got a haircut. You say, why did he get a haircut in Sincrea? Well, they had a good barber there. No. It says he was keeping a vow. Now, we're not told anything else about this vow. There's only one vow in the Old Testament that was associated with having your hair cut, and that was the Nazarite vow. It's described in Numbers chapter 6. It was a vow of dedication and separation to the Lord. That person was not to drink wine or any strong drink, not to eat or drink anything made from grapes, whether the skins or the seeds, not to touch any dead body, and not to allow a razor to touch their head. And at the conclusion of that vow, they were to offer certain sacrifices to the Lord, shave their heads, and then take their hair to the temple and put it on the fire of the altar there. That's the vow that Samson took in Judges 16. It's the vow that Samuel took in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and probably the vow that John the Baptist took in Luke chapter 1. They each took this vow for life. But obviously, it was intended to be a vow that you could take for a certain period of time because it tells us in Numbers chapter 6 how to complete the vow. And apparently, Paul took this vow for an unspecified amount of time. That time concluded when he was in the city of Sincrea, and so he had his hair cut. Now, why would Paul take an Old Testament vow? Well, we're not told. But there's two possible reasons. One would be personal, the other would be public. The personal reason would be that Paul was a Jew. And although he knew that the rituals of the Old Testament had passed away, he chose to use this expression to show his dedication to the Lord. You remember when Paul came to Corinth, he was struggling. He was fearful and he was distressed. And the Lord encouraged him when he was in Corinth. In fact, back in verses 9 to 11, the Lord came to him in a vision at night and said to him, I am with you. The Nazarite vow was a vow of separation to the Lord. So in essence, Paul is responding to the Lord saying, I am with you by saying to the Lord through this vow, I am with you. So it may have been a personal reason. 
But there's also another possibility, and that is that it was a, done for a public reason. He may have chosen this means of expression as a way to reach out to the Jews. Paul gave us his strategy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Paul sometimes acted like he was under the law even though he wasn't under the law so he could reach those who were under the law. And that may very well be what he's doing here. We find him taking a similar vow in Acts chapter 21 for that same reason. So he may have done it personally. Whether he did or not, I think he also did it publicly to make a platform by which he could reach out to his Jewish kinsmen. And then verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. It was a port city on the Aegean Sea and a natural stopping point for anybody heading east out of Corinth. When Paul arrived there, he did what he usually did. He went to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews and the response was favorable because they asked him to stay longer. But Paul said no. He did, however, leave Priscilla and Aquila there to establish their tent-making business, to acquire a house, and to reach out to that community. And we know they did that effectively because in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, Paul talks about the church in Ephesus that was meeting in their home. You say, well, if they asked Paul to stay longer, why didn't he consent? Well, let me suggest several reasons. Some people say it's because he had to get back to Jerusalem with his hair to put on the fire there. Uh, personally, I can't see Paul turning down ministry to do that. But there may have been another reason, and that is that he wasn't sure it was God's will for him to stay in Ephesus. I think Paul may have been a little bit reluctant to stay there because he hadn't received clear direction to do so. You remember when he was in Corinth, he did get clear direction to stay there back in verses 9 to 11. And the last time he got any instruction from the Lord about Asia Minor, where Ephesus is, he got a stop sign. That was earlier on this missionary journey in Acts 16.6 where it says that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to enter into Asia Minor. And so the last time the Lord told him anything about Asia Minor, it was don't go there. And now he's there on his trip back to Syria, but he's not convinced that the Lord wants him to stay there. And so what does he say to these people? He says, I'm leaving, but I will return if God wills. And then I think there's probably a third reason that he didn't consent to stay on this occasion, and that is that he realized that a commitment to stay in the city of Ephesus would be a long one. Because when he does come back to this city, we will find that he stayed in Ephesus longer than he stayed anyplace else. Acts chapter 20 and verse 31 tells us he stayed there for three years. 
And Paul on this occasion can't give that kind of time commitment because he needs to get back to Syria to the church at Antioch and from there he wants to go on to Galatia and strengthen the brethren. And so he says, I'm leaving now, but Lord willing, I'll be back. And then verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Now this is one of the longest verses in the Bible. It's about a thousand miles. He travels from Ephesus to Caesarea, which is the seaport of Palestine. And when he arrives there, it says he went up and greeted the church. Now, when you first read that, you assume that means he went to the church in Caesarea and greeted the saints there. There was probably a church in Caesarea because back in Acts chapter 10, Caesarea is the place where Cornelius was from, and all the people in his household were saved. But when we look carefully at the wording here, it says he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Now, Caesarea and Antioch were both seaports, both at sea level. You would not say that he went down to Antioch. They were both down. The expression going up was always a reference to Jerusalem. So what he did here was he landed at Caesarea, the seaport of Palestine. He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church there. And then he went from Jerusalem, the high point, down to Antioch, about 300 miles north of there. And verse 23 tells us, And having spent some time there in Antioch, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He stayed in Antioch for a while, and then he headed out again. And this is actually the beginning of his third missionary journey. It begins with him going to the churches he had already planted in Galatia and Phrygia, which tells us that though Paul had a heart for reaching new places for Christ. He also had a heart for strengthening and building up those young believers in those churches he had planted. And we see that all through Paul's ministry. He's always trying to go back and visit one of those churches, and if he can't do that, he's sending somebody else there like Timothy, and if he can't do that, he's writing a letter to them to build them up. And that's what we see him doing here. And so we see Paul in transition. He's taking a Jewish vow to express his dedication to God in a way that would help him reach out to his Jewish kinsmen. Secondly, we see Apollos in transition in verses 24 to 28. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. While Paul is finishing up his second missionary journey and beginning his third, Luke introduces us to a man by the name of Apollos who came to Ephesus. And we're told several things about him. Number one, we're told that he was a Jew. But he was not a native Jew. He was a Hellenistic Jew because he had a Greek name and he was not born in Palestine. He was born in Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was a city in northern Egypt located on the Nile Delta. It was founded by and named after Alexander the Great. It was a city at this time of about 600,000 people. It had one of the largest universities in the world. It was a cosmopolitan city with almost a quarter of its population being Jewish. With this great university there, it probably explains to us why it also tells us he was an eloquent man. This is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. A.T. Robertson says it means he was a man of many words and ideas. 
He was highly intelligent and highly educated. But not only that, it tells us here he was mighty in the Scriptures. I love that phrase. That means he didn't just know the Old Testament Scriptures. He had mastered them. He knew them inside out. And verse 25 goes on to say he was fervent in spirit. He had enthusiasm and zeal for the things of the Lord. And verse 26 says, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. He was bold. He was not easily intimidated. He was confident as he spoke. What a preacher this guy was. He taught the Old Testament scriptures with the rare combination of intelligence, enthusiasm, eloquence, and confidence. Wouldn't you love to hear Apollos preach? You know, Apollos was only lacking one thing. And it's described to us in verse 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. The message of Apollos wasn't inaccurate, and it wasn't insincere. It was just incomplete. It says he was acquainted only with the baptism of John, which helps us understand that phrase when it says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That phrase, the way of the Lord, appears four times in the New Testament before it's used here. It's used in all four of the Gospels, and each time it's used of the same individual, and that individual is John the Baptist. In John chapter 1 and verse 23, John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight, what? The way of the Lord. And so when it says here that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, it means he had been instructed in the way of the Lord as taught by John the Baptist. So what had Apollos been taught? He had been taught that Messiah was coming. He had been taught that we needed to make the way ready for him by repentance. And he had also been taught that Messiah who was coming is God himself. Because that quote, the way of the Lord, comes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, and the Hebrew word used there for Lord is Yahweh. Messiah is coming, and he is God himself. But the fact that he was only acquainted with the baptism of John tells us that he had never left John and gone to Jesus. So you see, though he knew a lot about the Messiah, he didn't know who the Messiah was. And so his message was one of anticipation and preparation rather than fulfillment. And when it says in this verse that he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, I take that to mean he was speaking things about Jesus not from an historical point of view, but from a prophetic point of view. He was going to the Old Testament Scriptures and saying, here's what the Messiah is, here's what he looks like, here's what he's going to do, but he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. And so verse 26 says, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos comes to Ephesus, he goes into the synagogue, he begins to speak, and Priscilla and Aquila are out there in the audience. 
And he's saying, Messiah is coming. He's going to be God himself. You'd better prepare for him by repenting. And here's what he's going to look like when he comes. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be a king, and his scepter will be righteousness. He will be God with us. He will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Priscilla and Aquila look at each other and say, he's teaching all about Jesus, but he doesn't know it. And so it says they pulled him aside and taught him more accurately the way of God. Now, their action shows us several things. Number one, we see in it the tact of Priscilla and Aquila. They don't teach him publicly. That might have humiliated him and confused the Jews. Instead, it doesn't say it here, but I assume they invited him over to Sabbath dinner. They always had their house open anyway. So they said, why don't you come over to dinner? And over dinner, they tell him, the rest of the story. The one you're preaching about is Jesus. And so first we see the tact of Priscilla and Aquila. Secondly, we see the teamwork of Priscilla and Aquila. And I like this. They served God through their marriage. They worked together in serving the Lord. They used their house as a means to serve the Lord. In fact, what's interesting here is that Priscilla is named before Aquila. The wife is named before the husband, which may indicate that she was more knowledgeable in the Scriptures and she may actually have taken the lead in explaining these things to Apollos. But what we also see here is the humility of Apollos. This mighty teacher, this great scholar, just gets through preaching. He's thinking, these people are coming up to tell me how wonderful that was. And instead, they take him aside and correct him. See, that takes humility. He consented to be corrected by a tent maker and his wife. If you were in charge, who would you have reach out to Apollos? This great scholar, this great preacher. I think we would all nominate Paul, wouldn't we? Paul, the scholar, should reach out to the scholar. But what happens? Paul leaves. Apollos shows up, and God chooses to use Priscilla and Aquila to appeal to this man. Because, you see, God is not going to appeal to his pride. God is going to appeal to him through humility. And what they had to share with Apollos was not complicated. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He just didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. What they had to share with him was simple. And I think that's a good illustration for us. You don't need a Ph.D. to share the gospel with a Ph.D. Because the gospel message is simple. And so here's this simple working couple, shares the gospel with this great scholar, shares with him what he didn't understand, that Jesus is the Christ. And he gained to that understanding. And verse 27 says, And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. In the course of their conversation together, Priscilla and Aquila apparently shared with him about the work Paul had done in the city of Corinth. And so with his newfound knowledge of the gospel, he wants to go there. And the Christians in Ephesus encouraged him to. In fact, it says they wrote a letter to the believers there to accept him. Verse 27 continues, And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace 
for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos was a great help to the church at Corinth. You say, well, how do you know he went to Corinth? Chapter 19 and verse 1 tells us that's where he went. In fact, Paul would later write to the church there in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and here's what he said. I planted, Apollos watered. Paul went there and planted the seed. Apollos came afterwards and watered that, and God caused growth in the city of Corinth. And Apollos not only ministered to the church, but we're told here that he also went into the public arena and powerfully refuted the Jews because he now knew that Jesus was the Christ. That's the very thing that Priscilla and Aquila had shown him. And so he could now use his intelligence, his enthusiasm, his eloquence in the Scripture to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. And so here's his transition from looking for Messiah to knowing him and knowing that he has already come. Which brings us to the third transition, and that is the disciples of John the Baptist in chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. While Apollos was ministering in Corinth, Paul, having visited the churches in Galatia and Phrygia, makes his way back to Ephesus, fulfilling the promise he made in 1821. I will return to you if God wills. And since Ephesus is at sea level, the phrase here, the upper country, is simply a reference to the inland, which is the higher ground. And what Luke is simply telling us is that Paul left Ephesus by ship. He returns by land. And when he gets to Ephesus, he finds some disciples there. Verse 7 tells us there were about 12 of them. Now, some people have gotten confused on this passage because they assume that these disciples were believers in Jesus Christ. They assume that these disciples were Christians. But the term disciple simply means a learner. And it's used various ways in the New Testament. It's not always used of believers. In John chapter 6 and verse 66, it says, As a result of this, many of Jesus' disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Here it's used of learners, followers who were not truly committed. They were fair-weather followers. And in this context, we're going to find that these disciples were not actually disciples of Jesus anyway. They were disciples of John the Baptist. But you see, when Paul first met them, he apparently assumed that they were disciples of Jesus. They talked like disciples of Jesus. They kind of looked like disciples of Jesus. They acted like disciples of Jesus. But the more he was around them, the more apparent it became that something was missing. And so verse 2 says, He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, Paul is not asking this question because the Holy Spirit is optional. He's asking this question because he doesn't see the evidence of the Spirit in their lives. Paul apparently looked at their lives and he saw no joy, no peace, no certainty, no power. And so he is asking this question to try to find out if they're really believers. And so Paul says, now let's, let's talk about the time when you believe. Did you receive the Holy Spirit at that point in time? 
You see, this is a test question for Paul because later in Romans 8 9, he's going to say, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So Paul knows if they don't have the Spirit, they're not believers. And so he's asking this question to try to find out. Sometimes we develop questions like that to try to find out if a person's really a believer. And so Paul asks this question, and their response in verse 2 is, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Paul asks the question, did you receive him? They say, no. In fact, they say, we don't even know if he exists. We didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. That's kind of hard to believe or imagine that the disciples of John the Baptist wouldn't know about the Holy Spirit because John talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. In, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me is mightier than mine, and I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Another way to translate this phrase is, we have not even heard whether the Holy Spirit has been given. And that probably, probably captures the idea here. Because what they're really saying is here, John told us that the Holy Spirit was coming in the future. You're asking us if we got the Holy Spirit in the past. We haven't even heard that he came. And so Paul asks another question in verse 3. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And immediately Paul knows what the problem is. You see, these are not disciples of Jesus. These are disciples of John the Baptist. Now, some people get confused on this passage because there are some teachers that say that these men were Christians, but they lacked the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul explains to them here how to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they got it, and that's the pattern for us today. But if we look closely at these, this passage, these men are unconverted. They have never come to faith in Christ. And Paul doesn't talk to them anything about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say anything about any second blessing with them. What he talks to them about is Jesus. Look at verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. John's baptism that you had was a baptism of repentance that looked forward to the coming of Messiah. John told you that when he comes, you're to believe in him. Paul says, let me tell you something, he's come. The Messiah is Jesus. And verse 5, and when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You say, well, why does it say they were baptized and it doesn't say they believed? Well, the fact that they believed is implied in verse 4 because he says, John told you that when the Messiah comes, you're to do what? You're to believe on him. So the Messiah is Jesus. It's obvious they believed, and then in follow-up to that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, the problem with these 12 disciples was not ignorance of how to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The problem with these 12 disciples was that they had never put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. They had never been baptized in his name. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit was granted, verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. See, Paul doesn't teach them anything about the Holy Spirit. What he does is he teaches them about Jesus. Jesus. 
And when they believe, it says he laid his hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of that was tongues and prophesying. You say, well, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit at the moment they believed? And why, when the Holy Spirit came, do we see the signs here of speaking in tongues and prophesying? Well, the reason is because this is really the fourth phase of the historical baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It began on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem with the Jews in Acts chapter 2. It then moved to Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, and they had the same experience, so, so they knew they were the same church. And then in Acts chapter 10, they had the same experience with the Gentiles, and they were brought into the church. And now we have this kind of unique group, this these disciples of John the Baptist. They were really, in essence, Old Testament saints. They had come up to that point. They had gotten past the cross, but they had never found out about Jesus. And they are now brought into the church as well with the same signs to show that they are all part of the same church. This is not the norm for the church today. You say, how do you know that? Well, because it's not repeated in fact, we know from Scripture that all the other believers in Ephesus received the Holy Spirit at the moment they believed. You say, how do you know that? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, writing to the Ephesians, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He writes to the Ephesians and he says, the moment you hear, heard the message and believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. There was no delay. You see, that's the pattern. What we see here in Acts chapter 19 is an exception because it's part of the transition that's taking place in the book of Acts. And so we see three examples of transition. We see Paul in transition taking a Jewish vow in order to reach out to his legalistic Jewish kinsmen. We see Apollos in transition preaching with an incomplete message that had to be corrected. And we see the disciples of John the Baptist looking forward with anticipation to the coming of Messiah rather than looking back with assurance to what Jesus did on the cross. You say, well, how does this apply to us today? Well, you know, today it's not uncommon for people to be caught somewhere between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Not uncommon today to find people still hanging on to legalism, still hanging on to rituals and ceremonies, going through life with an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And sometimes we have to ask the same kind of questions that Paul did. I talked with one of you here this last week and I asked you to tell me about your spiritual background. And you said, well, I have been baptized twice. I was baptized as an infant in one church, and then I went to another church, and I was baptized in junior high. Now, when I asked that question, it would have been easy for me to say, sounds like you're a Christian. You've got the double dip. You know, you've got two, two baptisms, and you've got the ritual, you've got the whole thing. It's easy to say, well, welcome into the family of God. But I asked another question. I said, well, you know, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. 
Have you been born again? Or let's put it this way. If you died today, would you know that you're going to heaven? And he said no. You see, he had a certificate of baptism that said he was a Christian. But he didn't know the Lord. And I had the privilege of leading him in simple childlike faith to the one he had been looking for. You know, maybe that describes your life up until now. Real religious, but incomplete. The Lord wants to make the greatest transition of all in your life. From lost to found. From doing to done. From works to faith. From religion to Jesus. All it takes for you, he's done all the work, all it takes for you is that simple childlike faith to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these examples of transition in the book of Acts. And Father, as we examine them today, we pray that we might be challenged to realize that just because people say they're followers of Christ and look like it and act like it and go through the rituals and the ceremonies, they may very well be lost. And Lord, I pray that we might be discerning enough to ask those challenging questions to really find out so that we might have the privilege of bringing them from a place of not knowing you and a place of confusion to the place of knowing you as Savior and the assurance of that. And Father, I pray that we'll be challenged to do so as we leave here today. In Jesus' name.